and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Sherry Cole was born and raised in the state of Oklahoma, and I'm sure as a kid, she didn't imagine one day being the head coach at the University of Oklahoma for the women's basketball team, but Sherry did just that. And she did it extremely well. She helped build a program that under her guidance won six Big 12 regular season championships. They were four times the Big 12 tournament champions. And they went to three Final Fours, including one Final Four where they finished runner-up in 2001-2002. Sherry built a heck of a program at Oklahoma. And she talks about her experience leading that team and that program for over 20 years. In addition to that, today's conversation is about much more than basketball. We hit on faith, we hit on parenting, we hit on leadership. How do you cultivate a culture in an organization? These are all themes that Sherry is passionate about. She also will share her love for the written word and how she appreciates and values communication. At her core, Sherry is a teacher. She's somebody who wants to make an impact and loves being part of a team. And not only is she a teacher, I probably would say, and we discussed this in today's conversation, that she is really a coach through and through. So I could introduce her as Sherry Cole, but instead, I'm just going to introduce you to Coach. Here we go. Coach, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. And I use that word and I'm starting to think to myself, yeah, when, whenever someone calls me a coach, I kind of light up. Uh, <laughs> when they call you a coach, how does that make you feel? Um, it, that's a great question because I, I uh, run into people that I haven't seen in a while in Norman. I still live in Norman, obviously, and everyone calls me coach. How you doing today, coach? How's this table, coach? And I love it. I, it's a term of endearment. 
I think uh, maybe the one of the most uh, kind and respectful things someone could say about you. So um, I love it. Please call me coach. When when people call you Sherry, does it hit differently? It feels weird. It feels yeah. weird. And you know, a lot of coaches today want to be called by their first name. That's that's sort of a new trendy thing. And my um, my players can't imagine um, calling me Sherry. As a matter of fact, my daughter-in-law used to play for me. <laughs> that's a good one. And uh, when she married my son, couldn't figure out what to call me because it felt weird to call me coach. And so now I have a, a granddaughter and I'm Gigi. So she just calls me Gigi and that solved a whole bunch of problems. <laughs> does Gigi, how does Gigi hit when, when you hear that, that term? Oh, it's the greatest thing ever. It's the greatest thing ever. Just you wait. <laughs> and coaching your daughter-in-law, what was that like? Well, she wasn't my daughter-in-law at the time. So it was fantastic. She was my point guard. She was really good. And um, the quintessential point guard, the kind that sees the whole floor and understands what you say and can go out on the court and, you know, bring it to fruition, respectful kid, beautiful, beautiful kid, uh, internally as well as externally. And so uh, I felt like we won the lottery when she and my son started dating. Once she entered the family, did she offer a different perspective to coach that might've been something that you weren't aware of or a blind spot for you that she felt more comfortable that she could share with you as a family member that was different than what she could share with you as a player? I think I, um, I think what she did was she enabled me to see me through their eyes, to see myself through the player's eyes. And I was often shocked at um, how they perceived a certain situation or um, how intimidated they were um, on occasion. And uh, it would have been great to have that insight when I was 30 instead of when I was 50. You said something earlier about how coaches now get called by their first name and then I'm thinking about mapping that on top of what you just said is how can I get the insight of or the brutal honesty or the transparency or the candor that your daughter-in-law can give you as she gets to know you in a different lens or a different way. I'm curious about the two of those, like the idea of having someone call you by their first name instead of coach or Mr. or Mrs. And also this notion of how do I get them to be honest and open with me? I, I don't know if there's anything in there, but I'd be curious to get your perspective on it. I think there probably is. I think a portion of it has to do with just the evolution of our world, the way society interacts. There's much less formality. You know, when I was growing up and we went to church, my mom wore high heels and a nice dress and all the men wore suits and ties. When you go to church now, uh, people are dressed like you and I are right now. So there's just sort of this, um, um, decrease of formality in general and titles uh, hold a stigma sometimes that's not necessarily as endearing as the way you and I might feel like the term coach when we think about our coaches there is just this um, immense respect and um, and and sort of um, admiration in a very um, suited up kind of way and I think now not that there's necessarily an absence of respect or admiration, but I think things are much less uh, formal. They're more pedestrian. And so I think a lot of coaches want to want their players to feel um, like they're one of them. And uh, I think that's sort of the other end of the spectrum. And that I always felt like as a coach and as a parent, I'm not one of you. Uh, I'm someone different. I'm in a different role. My job is to help you think and grow. And that means we're not always going to be friends. We're not always going to be on exactly the same page. It won't always feel good. Um, and I think some of that is tied up in that title too. And it's hard to get that sometimes if you don't have that, not impossible, but I think all of those things are just sort of a, an evolution of how we interact with authority figures. All right. I, there is a lot there that I'm curious about as I wear like when I used to do these episodes, I would never wear a hoodie. Like I'm wearing a hoodie right now as I talk to you in part because I'm recording this from my home and I used to go into my office and I would dress differently as I was going into my office, as I was seeing people in person. And I've let go like a lot of people have of some of the formalities that I had pre pandemic um, when I was going into the office. And so I almost want to, I want to pick your brain on this where like, let's just clean the slate. Let's forget about if it's 1920 or 2020 and let's just clean slate and use your experience here. 
if you could just say, forget any generation, forget what is acceptable by society or not. And you are creating the coach player relationship as it relates to, you know, you have a spectrum of being their buddy and being their friend or like you even talk about Gino Oriyama in in your book quite a bit. It sounds like he's probably not in that friend mode. He's telling them what they need to hear rather than what they want to hear. And so if you have that spectrum and you're just a clean slate, what would your coaching philosophy and style look like if it wasn't based on any societal norms? Well, that's a great question. It's also a loaded question because it's hard for us to strip what we know and feel. You know, you, you come in with that bias of having that experience. I will tell you this, though, and I thought of this while you were forming that question. When I was at the University of Oklahoma and I had to do what I called, quote unquote, big girl things. And that meant things that didn't have to do with drawing an inbounds play or deciding who the starting five were going to be in the next game. Things that had to do with going to see a donor about a significant gift to improve our facility or um a letter to uh, the Dean of Academics about a player who's trying to get in the College of Business and um, a referral letter of that sort. When those kinds of things lined my calendar, I didn't go to the office in my Air Jordan sweatsuit that had Oklahoma across the front. I went in a pair of slacks and a dress shirt and nice shoes. I went looking like a person who would do those things that I thought needed to be done. I have no idea if it helped or not, but it put me in a frame of mind to be able to quickly and seamlessly do the thing that I needed to do. And so I think for me, maybe to answer that question, it would be um, I would be the most comfortable in being a little bit different than the kids that I coach or the athletes that I coach. Doesn't necessarily mean um, opposite, but just a little bit different. I think that's important. And you mentioned going to church and I want to just tap into faith with you for a little bit. It's something I think about quite a bit. My wife and I have conversations about it as far as our kids. Uh, I was raised Jewish, um, but there's often a, but when I find people say that they were (laughs) raised Jewish, Uh, I find that with Catholics too. Uh, But I, I think like we put our kids in Hebrew school and it's usually boring and it's usually not a good experience. And in our religion, a lot of, the service is not even in the same language, so you don't really understand it. And so it's hard to for a lot of Jewish people to really feel connected to the religion portion of the religion. Then you have this cultural side, which a lot of Jewish people will say, hey, I feel culturally Jewish and there's a history and and, and there's a lot that goes into that. But I, for one, and I'll just speak for me, you know, we just watched um, the Buffalo Bills player uh, you know, have cardiac arrest and uh, Hamlin's his last name. And, and, and we watched him go through this process and it was traumatic to watch and to see. And then you saw, if you're on social media, so many people come out and pray and focused on prayer. And for me, I'm almost envious of people that are people of faith and that have clarity about their relationship with God. And I struggle with that and I, I don't have that clarity and I don't have um, in me as of today, the ability when something bad happens to go to prayer. And I really come from this, not from a place of that you shouldn't do that, but from a place of envy, I, I might even say jealousy. Like I admire those that have that strong faith that when something bad is happening, they'll go to a higher power and I don't have that in me. So it's a long way of sort of setting the table to say, like, I'm curious for you, you you mentioned being brought up in the church, you mentioned faith in the book. Um, it seems like there's a connection to God that, that you have. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and how that impacts how you show up in the world? Absolutely. Um, I appreciate the question. Yeah, I grew up in a little town in Southern Oklahoma where we went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night and Wednesday night. And we, my grandmother's house was about two and a half blocks from church. And if it was snowy and we didn't think the car would go up the hill, then we would just put on our boots and walk to church. It was that serious. Like you didn't, you didn't miss church. And uh, we had an open Bible in the living room all the time. Um, Then I went to a Christian college. I went to Oklahoma Christian college where we had chapel every day. And I'll just tell you, um, 
regardless of whether you have a faith or not, if you could stop for 15 minutes and sing some hymns and spend some time together, your day would be better. I don't care. It was amazing. At the time we fought it, like, well, you sit in my chapel seat today. I want to skip chapel today. You know, you are in college. And then you get out and you're like, oh, I miss chapel. I want to just pause today and uh, be still for a little bit and think about things that really, really matter, which is what chapel uh, was designed to have you do. And so then I went into teaching public schools and it's really the first time that I um, really, I think I knew it, but intellectually knew it, but really didn't, hadn't experienced a large group of people who had zero association with Jesus, zero. If you gave them a Bible and said, turn to Luke, they would go, excuse me, um, you know, find Deuteronomy. What's a Deuteronomy? They would have no idea. That was bizarre to me and a little bit of a, a brain shift. And uh, the vehicle of Fellowship of Christian Athletes actually uh, worked in our school systems. And I saw the, I want to say magic, but the, the, the peace <clears throat> and the shift in young people's perspective, their approach to life based on uh, getting to know Jesus through the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. It was phenomenal. And um, I've always had that. I've had that belief in God, that faith in God, that relationship with God, though it's morphed dramatically through the years. You know, uh, you, you go through those stages where he's way out there and you're like, ha, ah, and then you go through stages where you can feel him acting in your life. And um, I just feel very blessed to have been surrounded by uh, the kinds of people that I've been surrounded by who helped build that faith. But I, I do want to just throw this out. I have a former player who really has struggled with, you know, is God real? Is God not real? I don't know if I believe this. Maybe I believe this. I want to believe this. Kind of like what you just mentioned. Like, I'd really like to have what you have, but I don't really know that I can get that. Um, and the the question I would pose to her and she's sort of been through this in and out several times, she's, very much an adult now. That's the way of saying we're all getting older, but she's very much an adult now. And I would say, just think about it. If if he's not real and you're praying to him and you feel better and you feel peace and at the end of time, it's not, it's not there. There's no heaven. There's no God. There's no nothing. What have you lost? And if he is and you're anchored in, oh my goodness, how incredible is that going to be? And it would always elicit sort of the response that you just gave, just that kind of chuckle and that smile and like, hey, why not? Let's give it a try. And uh, she, um, I think, appreciates that approach and has found herself having a relationship with God, which is fantastic. I'm getting chills as you're talking because I went to Israel once and my best friend was with me and we were coming away from the Western Wall, which is a spiritual experience, regardless of your religion. And we're walking out and we're in this old city of Jerusalem and I'm having this same conversation with my buddy who I've always found to be more spiritually connected than I have been. And he said the same thing to me. He's like, Brian, what, what do you have to lose? There, there's not like much to lose in this proposition. And so that actually resonates with me, um, probably more so than any other message that's resonated with me from any other figure. Um, I want to go into this a little bit because there is now a theme that we've sort of started to pull on, which is around obligation or tradition compared to um, maybe autonomy or freedom or uh, sort of having uh, less of an obligation. Because you started by saying, hey, we went to church. It was an obligation. Even sometimes in college where we didn't want to go, we still would we'd be in that environment. And while I'm drawn to autonomy I think as a society, there are things that we probably would benefit from being obligated to do. And even before we started recording, we started talking about a forcing function. And you mentioned your blog and how, you know, you know, it's coming out weekly. So you got to write, even if sometimes you don't feel like it. And I mentioned this podcast and it forces me to read books and it forces me to listen and stop and ask questions. And so as our society continues to create more opportunities and freedom, I do wonder about do we miss on some of the obligations or some of the traditions or as we go toward maybe some people calling their coach by their first name, do we miss an opportunity to have a role model or someone who can help us see something in ourselves that we can't see if, if they're just our friend um, for you? I'm sure you've done a lot of thinking on this. How do you think about obligation versus autonomy or tradition versus progressing? And, and I know those are loaded binary things, but where do you see it as far as how you show up? 
Oh, you made me think of the <clears throat> sacred nature of team. I think we're losing that in so many facets of our society right now, and maybe particularly at the collegiate level, athletically. Um, this this sacredness that says, I am bound to you. I'm obligated to support you, to help you, to love you. Uh, my husband and I are binge watching Parenthood, this great show that has like, you know, 20 seasons or whatever. Um, and we're, as we go through it, just a little bit at a time where I'm reminded of, it's all about the, the, um, the, the commitment and the ties of family that are stronger than whatever is going on around you. And even when family is dysfunctional and even when family is um, uh, maybe not kind to one another, although it's not by choice, but sort of by circumstance, they end up hurting one another and how you stick together and you show up no matter what. And the way it's portrayed in that, in that show is incredible through the amazing actors. But that thing of, of sticking to something and somebody, even when it doesn't always feel good and it isn't always easy, I think um, our world is in trouble if we shift away from that because we have to take care of each other. And without some of these obligatory relationships, institutions, if you want to call them that, um, associations with one another, we miss those ties those invisible threads. When everything is autonomous, it's just like you can cut on a whim. I don't have to go there. I don't have to be there. I don't have to show up. I don't have to do that. And what you find then is that you're not really connected. Who are you really bound to? What are you really tied to that gives you sturdiness, that anchors you if everything that you do is on a whim or is based on how you feel or what you want that day? There's so much to be gained. And I don't just mean personal growth and intestinal fortitude and all those big words we use, but I mean joy, love, um, this feeling that's almost impossible to explain when you go through hard stuff together. The things um, our veterans share with one another who don't know each other at all, but because you fought and I fought, I will fight for you. You don't get those things if you're continually autonomous. I think that some of the institutions and the obligations that that are a part of our society give that give our society the breadth and the strength that it has. And I think we have to be very careful about balancing all that. Yeah, I love that you ended with with that idea of balancing it because you were in it. You were in it for you were at your your dream school. You were born and raised in Oklahoma. You built a program, and uh, your last season was twenty twenty one. So we're coming up on like two years um, away from the team, away from the obligation, away from. I'll use the word grind for some people that resonates. For some, it doesn't. Uh, what have you done to make sure that you're still connected to something uh, bigger than yourself and you're still connected? How do you get that for you, even if you're not, quote unquote, in the foxhole with with the team every day? Well, I have a lot of foxholes orbiting out there because of those relationships through the years. So whether it's with former players or former coaches or um, people that are a part of the profession but don't necessarily perform in that way. Uh, all of those are still a web. And that's part of the great, I guess, lasting gift of being a member of a team. You know, you you have your your college reunion of your team and you pick right back up where you were when you left off. That doesn't change, even though 30 years have transpired. The same is true for kids that you coach and people that you coach with. You go right back to those moments. Oh, do you remember that? Do you remember that? Oh, remember that bus ride? And those things come right back and you're immediately... Um, it's like those bonds are, are elastic. You know, they just, they don't ever get old. They just keep moving with you. Um, but for me, the intentionality is what's important. Uh, I'm a, I, I want to do things that matter. I want to do things that move me. Um, I want to do things that impact other people. And my writing is, is a passion that I chose to follow. One of my dearest friends, uh, asked me, uh, how do you, how did you not get lost after you stepped away from this um, very full and fast moving sort of life? 
And I said, I really think it's because I wasn't leaving anything. I was running toward something. I really wanted to pursue this idea of writing. It's been a passion in my pocket forever. And I wanted to have a chance to do it and and chose a couple of years ago as the time to pursue that. So it's having that thing that makes your heart sing that you wake up and chase every day. That's a big part of the tethering. But when you follow that, it automatically leads you to other people. You don't have to have a job that surrounds you with people. When you follow what makes your heart sing, it connects you to others. And um, I'm able to do that through writing, through speaking, through a little bit of consulting with college coaches, um, lots of different ways. But um, the circles have changed. Uh, They're different, uh, but they're still there. We're going to come back to writing, but I want to stay on coaching for a minute. Will you coach again? I don't think so. I don't think so. It's the metaphor for me is um, the cup was empty. I felt like I had uh, given in that way as much as I could. I had given all that I had, but I had this other cup over here that was really full and kind of flowing over. And it was time to use that one for a bit. And so I feel so fortunate to have had the greatest gig on the planet for as long as I had it. For me, it was the best job you could ever get. And, um, and I get to do it at a really, really high level and meet some amazing people and have unbelievable experiences. And I'm grateful, so grateful for every one of them. Such a, um, such a sense of peace and passion uh, for what we did, but it's time to do something else. It's interesting. I think, I've had so many podcast guests who moved on from coaching when they still were young enough to continue to coach. I mean, we've had on Jay Wright, we've had on Muffin McGraw, we've had on uh, Becky Burley, we've had on Jessica Kern, Adele Harris. I could keep going. Um, Quinn Snyder, who who just walked away from the Utah Jazz. And these are people, not all of them, but if they wanted to keep coaching, I'm pretty sure they could have. Um is there, and these are in the last three, four years, and it just seems like we're seeing more and more. Bronco Mendenhall walked away from University of Virginia football and took a year off to have a sabbatical. Um, even Tara Vanderveer, who we had on, takes two months off in the summer and walks away in that way. Are, are we are we in a different time right now? Where from my land, from my um, and it seems like sports coaches are more willing to step away than maybe they would have been a decade or, or 20 years ago. Are you noticing that? Or is that just in the orbit that I'm in that we're finding coaches say, Hey, maybe I need to to take a step back from this for a year, or maybe I need to take a step back for this forever. Um, and is that, has that always been there or is this a new uh, world that we're in, especially the last five years or so? Oh, I think we're definitely in a new era. Um, the landscape has shifted. The the playing field has changed. If you think about it, it's it's um, the reason that many coaches got into the game. If there's a if there's a pecking order, like this is why I feel called to do this or driven to do this, and then this and then this and this, it's flipped. And so that thing that maybe drove many of us the hardest toward a profession has taken very much a back seat. And I think at the core of that is that sacred nature of team that I spoke about. Um, But I think it's harder than ever. I think um, there's a greater awareness right now, um, which is such a positive thing, a greater awareness in the coaching community that there is more to life than the outcome of games. And when coaches start to become aware of how that might – put their mental health at risk. Let's put it that way. It might endanger them. I hate to use that term, but I think it's probably sufficient. Um, When there's an awareness of that and they can step back and, and make a choice about my family or my well-being versus this, I'm going to choose my family and my my mental health, my well-being. And that's because of a world in which, you know, there's such immediate criticism of everything that happens and, and um, such volatility and, uh, such money and such greed and such um, um, anger at times, um, uh, judgment, uh, all those things. I think that 
coaches are choosing uh, to do other things um, before they find themselves in a place where they resent what they love. And that's what I think is such a positive sign when a quote unquote young coach decides to do something else. Uh, it shows that they're exercising their God-given right to judge and make a decision about themselves and their own lives and what they want uh, moving forward. They don't feel like they have to do that. So I think in many ways, it's a sign of a healthy psychology that um, I'm making a choice uh, to not put myself in a position uh, where I might not be able to relinquish the grips of the world on my self-identity. As I hear you describe that, I go to a movie and I know you like movies and, and mentioned movies in, in your book. Uh, the, the movie I think of is The Girl Next Door, which is a funny movie. It's a comedy. It's uh, <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily think of it as a philosophical movie, but the the main um, line in that movie that sort of shapes the ending is there's a question, is the juice worth the squeeze? And that line is what I think of as I hear you describe it. And uh, it sounds like if you're coaching, the juice better be worth the squeeze because there's going to be recruiting. There's going to be an IL. There's going to be transfer portal. There's going to be a lot. There's going to be social media. And I think about a coach that's going through something tough right now publicly. And that was the question I kept going to in my head, man, is the juice worth the squeeze? Like, is it, is it worth it? Because there's some squeezing that I think goes on, especially when you get to the level that you got. And if you're comfortable with that and you embrace it and it doesn't bother you, then cool. But for a lot of us that are human, um, you know, feeling squeezed all the time, I'm sure it can lead to someone feeling burned out. And if the juice isn't there, what, what are you doing it for? Yeah, I, I think that's right. That That's ultimately, I guess, a, a better way of saying it's about your priorities and, and what you choose um, to get at the end. When you said movie, I thought about um, the Truman Show because it's so easy for high-level coaches to get caught up in this world that is make-believe. You know, he rides around Seaside on a bicycle and everything is like this every day and it's not real. You know, at the end, you find out you can zip it open and it's not really real. And this world that coaches live in, it's easy to start believing that it's all there is. And there's an enormous, big, wide, wonderful world outside of that bubble that you live in as a major coach and a major high level coach. So I think a lot of coaches are just choosing maybe at a little bit earlier age to unzip the bubble and step out and see what's there. And by the way, I mean, you coach for 20 plus years. It's not as though this was like, you know, a three-year stint and then you walk away. And and I find, especially in the sports world, that there's an addictive nature to the sports world because it is winning and losing. And there's very few things in life that are black and white. There is this camaraderie that exists in the locker room. There is a sisterhood or brotherhood or whatever you want to call it. Um, there is this cohesion that you get and it's beautiful and you by the way articulate that throughout your book there's relationships there's love there like there's some incredible elements of sport and then there's this other piece which is when you walk around the campus in norman you're important you're valued um whether it's make-believe or not people see you and they probably say hey coach and, and they know who you are how do you make sure that you're still feeling valuable and feeling important, even if it's not associated to the team and uh, helping the team row a boat in the same direction? Well, I think you've hit on probably the most dangerous facet of coaching in this, this public life world is that it's so easy to get what you do confused with who you are. You, it's not something where, you know, young coaches will say, oh, that'll never happen to me. It, it doesn't happen like that. It's like the frog in, in water where you just slowly turn the temperature up and all of a sudden he boils. It's that kind of thing. You don't realize that it's happening. And if you're not careful, you wake up one day and you have no idea who you are without that thing that you do. And so um, for me, I think being a young mother was just such a godsend in that regard. You know, when you whatever happens at work, you come in and you got to change a diaper and you got to get a, a kid and a toddler in bed and read him a book and you got to pack lunch the next day and you got to, you know, see if you've got to bring snacks next week. It's just, there's all this stuff that is so real um, that it's, it's, it's really hard to get caught up in that thing that the world thinks you are. 
my kids and I used to have this little thing that when we were out and someone said, oh, are you Sherry Cole? That I would say, no, but I play her on TV. And we would just laugh. The kids would just roll. They were just little and it stuck. It's it's still around today. My kids are grown. And if someone says that, we'll look at each other and wink. Yeah, but she used to play her on TV. And that was just sort of our way of um, remembering that that was just something that I did. And and who I was was their mom and, and uh, Sherry. You know, you got me thinking because it's the second time I went here in my brain. So I'm going to bring it up. The idea of being performative and, uh, you know, you playing her on TV. And then I go back to, hey, I'm going to leave the sweatshirt at home and the and the sneakers and I'm going to wear slacks if I'm meeting for someone and we're fundraising or I have to go talk to somebody for, uh, you know, getting one of my kids into the business school. And and then when I, I go back to that question, I was like, clean slate, like, how do you approach it? And to that end, we're all performative in some elements of our life when we're trying to influence or get something that that we desire. And you've got me wondering in my own mind is like, perhaps it's okay to understand if we're performing and it's out of intention and we know it's for something bigger than ourselves, or the cause is right. Like, yeah, go ahead, suit up. If it's for someone else and it's for something that matters, or I'm going to play this coach on TV, so to speak, because I'm, I need to perform in some ways. Like I can't just be their best friend. I need to play this role as a coach. Cause that's what the role is called for. And I'm wondering if like, can we have this performative side to us and then still remember who the heck we are and understand that our self-esteem isn't connected to the performative side, but go ahead and be the performer. And then when you're not performing, you can step into this other side of you that might be completely different and might be um, a different side of you. And both are genuine. Like, even though we're performing when we put the suit on, that doesn't mean that's still not a part of us. It is. It's just not who we are when we're with our grandkids per se. Does that resonate with you at all as far as separating those two? Beautifully said, actually. I, I think that it's necessary. Like we do have to perform. We we do. There are elements of our life where you use the term it's called for. And I think that's absolutely correct. But it doesn't mean that it's not genuine. It doesn't mean that, that it's not sincere, that that's not who you are. It's just who you are in a different role. And none of us have only one side. We have to have a lot of different sides to accomplish all the different things we want to accomplish. You're not with your wife the way you are with your children. You're not with your buddies the way you are with your wife. That doesn't mean the core of who you are changes. It just means the role you're playing in that particular moment is a little bit different. And when you think about it, Athletic teams are a perfect metaphor for that. They put a suit on and go and play. They, they gear up and they go and play and they become that guy that wears number 17, you know, and then they take it off and they go home and they're somebody's dad. And that's still the same human being in the middle of all that. It's just a human being playing a different role. Yeah. I think the mistake we make is thinking that authenticity is rigid and it's not flexible. And, and you can be someone when you're wearing a suit, the suit doesn't determine who you are. It's still going to be your character and your behavior and how you act. And you can be very genuine and authentic. I, I recently had somebody tell me, I know I'll be successful when I can walk into any room and wear a t-shirt and jeans. Okay. But like, just because you are going to wear a suit at a funeral doesn't mean that you're not being authentic. Like it's, it's what the occasion might call for. And, yeah. and it's and, not always about you. Like when you say, I, I, if that individual said, I, I don't know, I can be successful and I can wear a t-shirt and jeans. It has nothing to do with you. It has to do with the other people that are in that room that you are trying to connect with and accomplish things with. And I think that there's sort of a sense of selflessness attached to that, that I'm, I'm willing, I'm not going to change who I am, but I'm willing to meet somebody in a place where we can have an optimal connection and get done the most that we could possibly get done together. That's beautiful. I'm going to go, I want to go back to writing because you've used metaphors in our conversation today, um, whether it's the frog in the water or the cup being empty or full. And it's clear in your writing that you love to use metaphors. You'd love to use analogies. You love to bring things that don't seem connected to what you're about to talk about and bring that in. And your writing is 
I know you you studied it, but just because we study it doesn't mean we're good at it. Uh, your ability to stitch words together and bring in emotion into your writing. Like I got chills multiple times when reading your book. I smiled. I could feel myself choke up. And to me, that's a sign of, of great writing. Um, it's clear to me, you said earlier, like I, you know, I light up when I write and it's hard, um, but, you know, it's a purpose for you writing compared to coaching uh, and the emotion that you're trying to elicit when you're writing, is it similar? Is it different than the emotion that you would leverage when you're, when you're coaching kids? No, I think most, both professions are very similar because you can't do either one of them by putting your heart on a shelf. You have to just go at it full throttle. Um, the most effective coaches allow themselves to be attached. And when you get attached to kids, to people um, in your organization, you sometimes get your heart broken. You sometimes get trampled on, but your heart is out there. The same is true when you write. If you try to put your heart up on the shelf and write something that's disconnected to your soul, it won't be very good. It won't ever be very good, no matter what your expertise is with the English language. And so I think that full immersion, that all I'm bringing all of me to this activity, is very, very similar. I also think the grind is very, very similar. You know, whether you're a coach or an athlete, you show up every day and you work. Whether you feel like it or not, you show up every day and you work. Writers do the same thing. You get your butt in the chair every day. And sometimes it's good and sometimes it's trash and you just toss it out the window and try again the next day. But the showing up is the critical piece of it. So there are all kinds of similarities between the two. And I think a synergy because, you know, as... You talk about the use of metaphors. Well, that's how you teach. You know, I, I remember doing my student teaching in my in English at Edmond Public Schools. And my the lady that I worked with, the uh, master teacher that that I was learning under a 40 plus year veteran of teaching senior English said. Um, a gerund is a verby word. And I'll never forget thinking a verby word. And she's like. Yeah, it acts like a verb. It moves over here and it moves over there and it it does stuff. And that I'd never really understood that before, that when you put two in front of a a, a word it, together, they act like a, a verb. And that that exemplification of that made it stick. And I learned how to teach English in a way that my students could understand the parts of speech and what to do with them and how they functioned. And I did that by comparing it to something that they already understood. And the same thing happened um, on the basketball court. The more you could you could wrap things in words and situations that the players were familiar with, the better they would understand them. And so it sort of becomes a way of, of communicating and thinking. And uh, as does storytelling, you know, what do you do every day before practice? You tell a little story. That, that's how you set the stage for what's going to happen. What do you do in the pregame in the locker room every day? You tell a little story. And what do you do after a bad loss? You find a way to tell a story that gets you ready to do what you need to do the next day. So you're constantly um, wrapping things in ways that help people understand. And and that's what writing is. It's just coaching was verbal and, and this is fingers on a keyboard. You took a basketball coaching course in college. I'm curious if you were teaching that course tomorrow, what would it include? Um, a whole lot more psychology than uh, my theory of coaching course did, for sure. Um, obviously, it would include basketball fundamentals and terminology. I would have a large section on sticky language because, again, I think that's how people learn. Um, it would have a section on the power of asking questions, the difference between um, telling and asking. And, oh, coaches are such good tellers. We are so good. Put your hand here. Put your foot there. Do this. Do that. Um, but the real ruts are created in kids' brains by uh, having to reach and search for the answers. So when you pose questions, that's how they remember things. And that's how they can hang on to them and go back to them. So um, there would be a, a large section on that as well. And uh, I think probably uh, a much more developed uh, section on the on the power and the purpose of team. Because it was so taken for granted at the time, you know, in the 80s when I'm in college and talk about team, we're like, oh, everybody's like, oh, yeah, I know. Yes, team is sacred. You don't really have to say much about it because we all lived it and we knew it. Um, but I think we kind of have a responsibility to teach young people about that now. I don't think it's 
modeled. I don't think they feel it as much in the fragmented society that we live in. I think they're scared of it. They're leery of it. They don't really believe it's real. And so I think um, coaches have a responsibility to teach that. So that might be a, a big section as well. What's interesting, University of Pennsylvania has this uh, positive psychology wing in their department and positive psychology is named awful, awfully. I think it's, it's just worded poorly. And really what it is, is a lot of study of well-being and wellness and happiness. And the core tenets of those elements often involve being part of something bigger than ourselves, often involve social connections, family, uh, the idea, the more that we have of those things, our happiness tends to increase, giving back, having gratitude. Uh, those are the core tenets if you want to increase your happiness. And I don't really believe any human is truly selfless. I think, you know, Mother Teresa was doing what she was doing in part because it made her feel good. I think the person working at the soup kitchen does it because it gives them fulfillment. Uh, I, I think all of us, if we could tap into that connection of, yeah, if you're part of a team, you're probably also going to live a more fulfilling and happier life. And that's one of the reasons to do it. And there's nothing wrong with that. And so I think you're sort of hitting on that uh, as well. Uh, the other pieces that I heard you mention earlier that I would add are you thought you've talked a lot about being vulnerable and putting yourself out there. And I think a lot of coaches are scared to do that. And I think there's a political nature that often happens, especially when you get to a professional level, which division one basketball is, uh, but vulnerability, it's really hard to connect with people if you're not willing to be vulnerable. And then the big one that I think you're an expert at is communication. And you said, you mentioned storytelling, but a big part of coaching is communication in a one-on-one -on -one setting, communication at a press conference, communication with your athletic director, communication when you're trying to fundraise. I mean, it is just so, so critical. And I think for you, because you are writing, when we write, we sharpen our communication skills. And so um, those are pieces that I would add to, to the catalog as, as if you were to go forward. Uh, the other piece I was really curious about is you started your book by acknowledging who wasn't included. And it was almost like, hey, I'm going to talk about some of my players and my family uh, and some of my mentors, but I know I'm not going to include everybody. And I think your your book's like 165 pages. So if you wanted to make it 1000 pages, I'm sure you could have included everybody, but people probably would not have stayed the course with that. At least I wouldn't, I would have probably bailed at some point. Um, but for you, does the desire to be inclusive ever hold you back? Um, boy, that's a loaded question. Uh, I think it might depend on the arena, uh, the application of where the, the question is applied. Um, when I think about it in terms of the book, um, the disclaimer at the beginning was um, sort of a side chuckle um, because uh, I, I have this really funny bunch of former players, uh, really funny bunch, first Final Four team, 2002. They were just, you know, just a one of those collections of people where you just think, I got this recipe right. Like we got all the little things we need in here. And um it's just a gas to be around them. Well, one of them said, there better be a story about me in this book. And we had a good laugh about it. And so the disclaimer sort of came, I started thinking about it. Well, I don't even have a story about my husband in here. So this is definitely not a list of the most important people in my world. This is a collection of stories that about people that matter to me that hopefully can nudge other people to think or feel. So um, this idea of, of inclusion, I think, um, is a difficult one to separate out of context. I think it's very difficult because um, inclusion is obviously, obviously the way you, you create um, the kind of environment that we all wanna be a part of, the kind that we can learn from and grow from and, and that stimulates us. And everybody has that right to be included in whatever we're talking about. Again, we're trying to you know slice it up here uh, but I think there are times when you're talking about um, a, a recipe, I used the term just then, you, you don't want to put everything in your spice cabinet in the recipe. It's just going to make it a total mess. So you have to include the things that that make it what you want it to be ultimately if you're creating a project. And so in this particular category, in terms of writing the book, it was about um, what fit the potential purpose of it. Yeah. And even you have stories in the book where 
a player might have been excluded from another team and not get recruited and it led to an opportunity for you. And I think the nature of sport and cutting or or in professional levels where they're trading or there's all these different elements, um, it, it still doesn't stop us from being inclusive and making people feel seen or making or creating a sense of belonging. And I know I'm I'm posing questions that are are sort of binary that are not binary. And they're usually a blend of of the two. Um, but I, that just stuck out to me. I, it's very rare that I read a book where in the beginning, someone is hedging, so to speak, to say like, hey, if you're not in this, I still love you. <laughs> it, it, this isn't about the love of my life, even your husband, as an example. The, this this is about trying to sort of help people see these stories and see different people that have poured into me in, in different ways. Um, one of the people and one of my favorite stories in the book was about Colton and pajama day. And speaking of inclusion, like this story, I think hits on making people feel as though they are special. And um, when there's an opportunity to embarrass or an opportunity to maybe um, have some shame or, or maybe make someone feel left out. Um, Colton's teacher went in just a different direction. So I'd love for you to share that story. Uh, and then we'll start to wind down as, as we uh, conclude this conversation. But it was just a story that I thought was beautiful. And I think could resonate with a lot of people that uh, are not going to play division one basketball and um, are in more of a day-to-day -day setting. And all of us have been in school and had teachers and uh, had teachers that may have made us not feel great. And then had teachers that made us shine. So can you share that story with us? Yeah, I would be, I would be happy to I'd be honored to. Um, uh, Pajama day is one of those stories in the book that still each time I read it or talk about it, I still sort of feel it viscerally in behind my sternum, uh, partly because uh, as a young parent, everything that occurs feels like it's, you know, going to uh, maim your child or, you know, <laughs> send them to the moon. Everything feels so extravagant and, uh, and you, you're marked by those occurrences as a young parent, because you, you understand the responsibility that you have and, helping a human grow. Um, but Colton uh, is in, in kindergarten and, and I'm going way too fast as a major college basketball coach and not being as thorough as I need to be. And, and um, he tells me that it's going to be pajama day at school on Friday. And I'm like, Oh, great. And, and, and then as the day gets closer, he's so excited about pajama day. And I, I say, well, I don't see, I, I don't see anything in your Thursday folder about it. That's where they send all the information. At. They're not, they didn't say anything. So mama promise. Miss Edder said, it's pajama day. And he was, you know, just this first child. I want to do everything right. I want to please everybody. I want to get this thing. And um, he was, he was so sincere and I was so scattered that I, I, okay, you're, you're five. You listened, you heard it. It's happening. Let's go put Spider-Man on. Let's roll. And I, I, that what I can feel behind my sternum now, when you ask me about that is that crawly drive around the loop to drop him off for school as I'm watching kids get out and run into the school and nobody has on their PJs. And I'm just like, oh, this might be a miss. What do you think, big boy? Nope. Miss Edder said, Miss Edder said, okay, great. So I think maybe it's a kindergarten thing. You know, they do things that are different from the rest of them. Okay, great. Take him. And I just, I would just look at the phone in my office all morning thinking she's going to call and say, you know, Colton's in his PJs and everybody's making fun of him and you need to go home and bring him some clothes. And she didn't. Then when I picked him up, my first, my worst fear had come true. All the kindergartners are running out at noon to get in the car and not, nobody has on their pajamas. <laughs> and then um, Mrs. Edder comes walking out to the car, holding hands with Colton. He's wearing Spider-Man and she's wearing these big fluffy bunny slippers. And he's great. And she's great. And I kind of look at her like, are, are we having an okay day? And she said, yes, we did. And she says, um, Colton was our leader today. And, and, uh, it's su superhero day um, because he was the only one who listened and uh, wore his pajamas as I had told them. And she called me that night and said, you know, I, I messed up, man. I, I, I told him the wrong date and he's the only one that was paying attention. I thought there's no way anybody's paying attention to this. Nothing's going to happen. And then he walks in the next morning and she said, she felt like, Oh, you know, her heart was probably dripping out of her sternum as well. But uh, and we're friends to this day. I see her occasionally in town and um, um, we laugh about it. But 
um, it was a really big deal because he could have been embarrassed and he could have felt shame and he could have been ridiculed, but she turned it around and made him the goat. And um, it's a, it felt like just another blip along her, you know, 40 years of teaching, but it was a blip that probably significantly um, was beneficial to him. And not that he would have been maimed for life had anybody ridiculed him or, um, you know, he, if he was embarrassed from that day. But I think because of her reaction, he was so set up for good stuff in the future. And I think that's the takeaway lesson is we have so many opportunities every single day to set people up for something great. And sometimes we don't necessarily take anything away from them, but we just miss that opportunity to set them up. And um, she didn't, and I'm forever grateful. And I think for every young parent, uh, you can think back to several of those and several different folks who probably did that for your kids. Yeah. And, and I go back to you with your, your career, Gino Ariama, head coach at university of Connecticut, uh, legendary coach built one of the best programs in sports uh, said to you, I think when you were coaching in high school, Hey, you're really good at what you do. When, when he said that to you, how did that make you feel? Oh, immediately shoulders back, head up. Wow. Wow. And it was one of those things that um, the way he said it stuck inside of me. And if ever there were a moment in the future where I waffled a bit, I would go back to that and re-anchor into it. It becomes this this spot when it's genuine and, and sincere. Um, the actions of others can buoy you for years and years and years, maybe even through a lifetime. Something as simple as a statement or uh, a reaction or a response. It's a great way for us to to start to close here. So uh, you got this book, uh, Rooted to Rise. And um, I would imagine part of the reason for putting that out is your ability to make an impact beyond perhaps Norman, Oklahoma, and you know inspire people. If people want to read the book, where can they find it? If people want to learn more about you, you mentioned speaking, some consulting, uh, some other work. Um, where, where's the best place for them to find you online, social media, all that good stuff. Well, I stink at social media. Um, so I'll just start with that. I'll say my website is, uh, sherrycole.com. So that's easy to remember at least. Um, I have a weekly blog that's called a way of life that is, um, free and you can subscribe for it. Come straight to your, your inbox every week. And then a monthly newsletter that goes with that. And I, uh, I love the, forced function of that, how it forces me to get a piece of writing to completion every single week, or at least I don't know if, if a write, piece of writing ever really gets to completion. You could rewrite from now till the end of time, but uh, at least to a point where it's ready for public consumption. So I, I love doing that. And then there you can contact me via that website as well for keynote speaking engagements or work with teams or coaches. And uh, the book Rooted to Rise is available at Amazon.com and it's also available at BarnesandNoble.com. So you can find it at Amazon or online at Barnes and Noble and then a lot of bookstores in Oklahoma. I'm a, a big believer in brick, bricks and mortar and I love, love, love perusing bookstores. They were my happy places when the coaching world got a little bit heavy and I needed to escape. I would get lost in a bookstore. So uh, there are a lot of um, independently owned bookstores in the state of Oklahoma that carry rooted rise. And I'm, I'm very proud about that. As I hear you talk about the pride of the book, it does hit me a big part of being a head coach at a division one university is dealing with judgment and dealing with people who are critical of you should have subbed this person or your offense isn't this, or your defense is that, or you recruited this, but like, it's just constant judgment. And I think of a book and when you said, you know, you never really finished, but you have to put it out there. One of the things I've struggled with with my book is, all right, it's done. I know there's going to be things in there three years from now that I disagree with. If I continue to evolve and grow, how how do you deal with judgment, whether that was as a coach or as an author? Like, how do you filter and make sure that even if it's positive, right? Like, How do you make sure you stay grounded as you're as you're getting accolades or you're getting critics? Uh, critics coming out? Um, that's a tough question. And I think it's um, <clears throat> real. If coaches are being honest when they answer that, they'll say it's the, perhaps the hardest thing to do. Um, I kept, when, when my first year at Oklahoma, we were five and 22. 
five and 22. I'd been a high school coach. So you can only imagine, you know, um, it wasn't pretty. And uh, I would get all this mail. And that was back in the day where there was no social media. So people had to really be mad at you to sit down and write a letter and put a stamp on it, put an envelope, find the address, you know, and I got a lot of it. Um, And I read some of it and it was just, you know, broke my heart. It just broke my heart. It was demoralizing. And it, it broke my heart because I'm a very, I think I care a lot and, and uh, I wanted to uh, do right by the institution. I wanted to build a thing and, and it, it was hurtful. And, and then I thought it's not healthy to read this. And my secretary had one of those tools, you know, that every desk used to have like the knife thing where you open the letter. So all the envelopes would be open at the top. And I quit reading them when they came in my inbox, but it's almost like the negativity got all over me anyway. It just wafted out of the envelope. So I made this file and it said poison pen. I put the word poison pen at the top of the file and I just threw all the letters in it and I put it in this drawer. And then six years later, we're playing for the national championship. And as we're winning conference championships leading up to that national championship appearance, um, I'm starting to get all this really great mail, you know, and it's like, you're really good. You're the best thing that ever happened. The university of it's really good. And that makes me feel really special. And I want to read every one of those letters like five times, right? Like, Oh, we just read this again. And I realized after a few that that wasn't very healthy either. And so I would throw all of those that my secretary opened with the little knife tool at the top into the poison pen file. And I changed the label on the file and it said poison pen slash love letters. And it, everything I got just went in there. And at the end of 25 years, when I cleaned out my office, I opened a drawer and found that poison pen love letter file that had filled up the entire file drawer. Now it wasn't just a file folder, it was a file drawer. And I died laughing and then I tossed it in the garbage bag and it went away. And I think that that somehow I got lucky and that act, that small little act of just throwing it all in a pile and letting it incest among itself freed me from an attachment to other people's opinions. And I can't say that it always did. I can't say that there weren't moments where I felt the weight of the judgment world on my shoulders. But I think what you learn as you get older and more experienced in in the business of coaching is that you have to detach enough to be able to see everything as information. If you can depersonalize it, pretend it's about somebody else, pretend you're somebody else, whatever it is you have to do to disassociate with it enough to just take it as information both positive and negative judgments can really be beneficial. They can really make you better because you can sift through what's real and what's not and what might have a sliver of truth to it and what might not and and what fits and what doesn't. You, you can look at it all as just information and then you can make decisions about it. Yes, this will make me better. No, that won't make me better. It just becomes stuff that you use to get better. But I don't know. It's That's a hard thing to do when you're young. It's a really hard thing. I mean, I think being aware of it is helpful and you can sort of chart a course to maybe put some some actions in your life that help you do that, help you ferret it out the way the poison pen love letter file did for me. Um, but in many ways, it's it's kind of something you have to live through and experience through and learn how to do on your own and sort of a painful fall and skin your knee kind of way. Have you been able to do that with the book as well? Yeah, and I think that... Um, 25 years in the business and the bright lights helped me tremendously. Um, my immediate thought, no matter what anybody says, that oh, this is fantastic, or it was good, I wish I had more basketball, or it was good, but I didn't understand the basketball. You know, you get all the different kinds of things. Um, is I didn't really write it for you. You know, I wrote it because it was true to me. And I thought that, it might help people. So if there's a part that helps you, that's fantastic. If it doesn't help you, okay. I have no problem with that whatsoever. Um, that I've learned, I think, to detach from from all creative, uh, um, I guess, endeavors. Um, that life as a as an Oklahoma basketball coach helped me tremendously with that. I remember the first negative review that I read about my book. 
and it was a posting with like 50 bucks and someone was giving stars like one to five stars i'm going through the list and i'm just looking at his list and i'm like oh there's my book i can't believe it's on this list and that was two stars i was like shit (laughs) two stars And I ended up connecting with the person because I wanted to get feedback on like, hey, what didn't resonate with him? But as I'm going down the list, also, I think it was opened by Andre Agassi, got like one or two stars. And for me, uh, the book about Andre Agassi's life was one of the greatest books I've ever read. And I was like, I'm like, oh, maybe I'm in good company here. And, And it just got me thinking that, you know, you might like cilantro. I might hate cilantro. You might love the Truman show. I might hate the Truman show. You might love game of Thrones and I might not like game of Thrones. And we accept it often when it's about food or our movie or our music or our TV shows, but we have the inability to create that space often for ourselves when it has to do with anything about our craft. And for me, seeing that list and then talking to the person and getting their perspective actually was quite helpful. And it was a great reminder. It's like, Oh, well I thought open was an amazing book and this person didn't. And by the way, they're entitled to their opinion. We all are. And it's all good. Uh, but it doesn't make it any less easy to do. And it, I think like we have primary emotions and primary thoughts and then secondary emotions and secondary thoughts and the understanding that our primary emotions and our primary thoughts might not be the best for us is something that's a bit of a game changer for me as I navigate this world. You mentioned parenting earlier. I mean, I we could have a whole other podcast about being a young parent. And uh, a lot of what you said about your experience resonated with me today, including the pieces of this conversation that had nothing to do with parenting. So um, I say to people all the time, my kids are six and seven right now. I put most things through the lens of how I'm showing up as a parent, just because I think it is what's most important to me in in my world right now. Um, But Sherry, this has been a blast. I play on Twitter. I know you do too, a little bit. You're at Sherry Cole. I'm at Brian Levinson. And then you're also on LinkedIn at Sherry Cole. And I'm on LinkedIn as well at Brian Levinson. Uh, So I will give those social media, uh, handles uh an opportunity to live and then uh you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast sherry this has been a blast thanks to jamie and christian for connecting the two of us uh i look forward to meeting you if and when you're speaking in washington dc uh would love to get together and we can talk about the cowboys and the commanders uh over a cup of coffee or lunch or, or whatever it might be but thank you so much for everything you're doing highly recommend people check out sherry's book and looking forward to seeing what you continue to do to share your knowledge with the world. Thank you, Brian. It's been a blast. And your um, uh, curious questioning has me thinking about all kinds of things right now. So that's one of the reasons I enjoy doing these. Thank you so much for how you do what you do. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. One of my dearest friends uh, asked me, uh, how do you... How did you not get lost after you stepped away from this um, very full and fast moving sort of life? And I said, I really think it's because I wasn't leaving anything. I was running toward something. I really wanted to pursue this idea of writing. It's been a passion in my pocket forever and I wanted to have a chance to do it and, and chose a couple of years ago as the time to pursue that. So it's having that thing that makes your heart sing that you wake up and chase every day. That's a big part of the tethering.